Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. Harvest Lakeshore is a redeemed family who loves God and loves others. For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Ephesians 1, 11-14 In Him we have obtained inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard of the word, the truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Caitlin, for sharing that with us this morning. Appreciate that. It's good to be here today. Good to have you here today. I hope as you were coming in this morning that you uh, grabbed a copy of the outline for the message today. Um, some little things to fill in the blanks, but there's also some material on the back that uh, I think you would find uh, encouraging and helpful. So if you got one of those on the way in, that's great. If you didn't, uh, go grab one now if you'd like or grab one on the way out. But uh, we'd just like you to have that maybe as a little bit of a resource, a little bit of a tool uh, to use as we go through the week ahead to kind of reflect back upon uh, what it is that uh, we were talking about and learning today. You know, generally speaking, we are a culture that kind of uh, lives for the weekend. I mean, I recognize that that's not true with everybody's schedule. Uh, some people have to work on weekends. Uh, if you're in the medical field or something like that, you may have not work every weekend, but maybe every other weekend. It just sort of comes with the territory because uh, be- people get sick and have medical needs all the times. But generally speaking, we're a nation that lives for the weekends. If you think about it, we even define some of the days of the week by the weekend, right? I mean, think of Wednesday. We call Wednesday hump day. Why? Because it gets us over the hump on the way to the weekend, right? Uh, Thursdays. Take, for instance, Thursdays. I used to listen to uh, WBBM out of Chicago in the morning, and there was uh, an announcer that used to be on WBBM in the morning. Her name was Felicia Middlebrooks, and uh, she used to... uh, call Thursday Friday Eve because she compared Thursday to Christmas Eve. It was kind of like the day before all the fun occurs, right? Friday comes, the weekend comes, we're looking forward to the weekend. And then just think about Fridays. There's not a, uh, a school child, a, a student uh, in our auditorium this morning in our church today that doesn't know that the best day of the school week is Friday. In fact, probably even teachers feel that way. Because Friday is the end of the school week. Friday is the day before the weekend starts. So again, I mean, if we're honest, Friday evening through Sunday evening are probably the best 48 hours of the week. We sort of uh, celebrate their arrival when we walk out of school. We celebrate their arrival when we walk out of work. And we sort of mourn their um, departure when we lay our head on bed on Sunday night and we set the alarm clock and we know that we've got to get back up in the morning and go back to school or back to work. It's kind of who we are. So generally speaking, we are a nation that lives for the weekends. We love to enjoy. We love to rejoice over and celebrate 
our weekends. Well, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have greater realities to celebrate. Not that it's wrong or bad or anything like that to celebrate the weekends. We look forward to the weekends. But we have greater realities to celebrate than just the weekends. In fact, our greatest source of rejoicing, our greatest source of celebration is our salvation. In fact, we're learning about that as we have begun a study through Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. So again, if you didn't turn your Bible there, I encourage you to do so, because this morning we're going to be looking at chapter 1, once again, of the book of Ephesians. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at uh, the truth of divine election, sort of this first component of our salvation. And uh, we recognize that uh, talking about election and predestination and being chosen of God, that that comes with its only kind of its own set of difficulties and, and kind of things that are hard to put together and sometimes hard to understand. But as we looked at that, we, we did learn a few important things about election from verses 3 to 6. And here they are. Let me just remind you of them. Number one, the truth of election is a divine revelation. It is not a human speculation. In other words, Paul and Peter and John didn't huddle in some room shortly after the ascension of Jesus Christ, and one of them looked at the other and said, hey, I've got this idea. Let's come up with this thing. Let's call it election. No, it wasn't the invention of the apostles. It wasn't the invention of, of a handful of believers in the early church. No, the truth of election, as hard as it is sometimes to get our arms around, it is a divine revelation. It is not a human speculation. We also learned that the truth of election is an incentive to holiness and not an excuse for sin. Now, some might see it otherwise, but that's certainly not how the Word of God teaches it. And then third, we learned that the truth of election is a stimulus for humility and not a basis for boasting. It's a stimulus for humility, not a basis for boasting. So therefore, the truth of election should actually lead us to righteousness and not to sin. It should lead us to humble, adoring gratitude, not to boasting. Paul tells us in those verses, verses 3 to 6, that there are actually some very practical consequences of election, and that should be that we live holy and blameless before him and that we live to the praise of his glorious grace. So the idea of election isn't just to be something sort of out there that we can't get our arms around that we'll never fully understand. No, it's actually designed to move us toward, to encourage us to live holy and blameless before him and to live to the praise of his glorious grace. So that was two weeks ago. We looked at those verses. And then last week, we sent our attention on verses 7 to 10. And we looked at a second component of our salvation, that being our redemption. And as we talked last week, uh, redemption refers to Christ's death on the cross that paid the price required to purchase the elect from the slave market of sin. And we discovered from those verses, verses 7 to 10, some important um, reasons that redemption gives us for rejoicing, one of them being complete forgiveness. Paul tells us in those verses that, that God uh, gives us forgiveness in accordance with the riches of his grace. So it's not a skimpy forgiveness. It's not a, uh, a minuscule kind of forgiveness. It is a riches kind of forgiveness that is given according to the riches of his grace. And he tells us there that he lavishes that upon us. He just immerses us in it, spreads it all over us. So one of the reasons that we rejoice over our redemption is because it gives us complete forgiveness. A second reason that we discovered from verses 7 to 10 
that redemption gives us a cause for rejoicing is that we're given an ultimate goal. Paul tells us that we are in Christ, that we are in community, that we are a redeemed family for the ultimate goal of making Jesus Christ Lord of all. That is the the preeminent purpose in our redemption. That is sort of the final outcome of our redemption. That is the ultimate goal, the sumum bonum of our redemption, is Jesus Christ being Lord of all. So if we're here today and we're redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and we're thinking about the week ahead, we're thinking about the work week or the family week or the, the school week or, or whatever things we have to do this coming week, maybe we're doing some traveling, maybe some other things are happening, we need to look at our week ahead in view of, as a redeemed family, as a redeemed person in Christ and in community, I need to look at the week ahead in light of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. How do I make him in my work this week Lord of all? How do I make him at school this week? How do I make him Lord of all? How do we flesh that out as a family this week? How do we do that in our finances this week, in other relationships of our life this week? Because if we're in Christ and in community, part of that redeemed family, this is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is the preeminence of Jesus Christ in every single aspect of our lives. So, so far, we've looked at the first two components of our salvation. This morning, we want to consider a third component of our salvation. We want to talk about our eternal inheritance. And we want to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in that eternal inheritance. So just as we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing, and just as we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, and just as we have been predestined to adoption as sons and given redemption through his blood and shown the mystery of his will, so also we'll discover today that we have, ob- we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. Now, this is the component of our salvation that is primarily future. We were elected, chosen, predestined before the world and time began. We have been redeemed in this present age, and we will receive our eternal inheritance in the age to come. So what we're looking at today is primarily future. So let's turn our attention this morning to verses 11 to 14, uh, the verses that uh, Caitlin read for us just a couple of moments ago. And let's look at these verses, and as we're looking at these verses, we want to ask the question, we want to learn about our eternal future inheritance, and we want to learn about the role of the Holy Spirit in that eternal inheritance. So let's look at that this morning. Verse 11. In verse 11, Paul tells us something about the source of our eternal inheritance. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, as we look at that verse, verse 11, I think we discover from that verse that there is sort of a a threefold or a three-part source to our eternal inheritance. So our eternal inheritance is basically based upon three things. Number one, Christ. Christ. The source, the basis of our inheritance is our being in Christ. Because if we are outside of Christ, then we're separated from God. If we're outside of Christ, then we're outside of his family. And therefore, we have no eternal inheritance. It is in Christ that we have obtained an eternal inheritance. 
Now, you might look at that phrase there where it says, we have obtained an inheritance, and you said, well, I thought you just said it was future. But yet I look at that phrase, and it sounds like it's past tense, right? We have obtained an inheritance. Well, it's kind of an interesting phrase, that phrase, we have obtained an inheritance. In the original language of the New Testament, it's actually just one word. In our Bibles, it's five words. But in the original language of the New Testament, it's just one compound word, and the tense that God chose to use for this, because it's a verb, the tense that God chose to use here is a tense that speaks of something in the future that was so certain that it could not possibly fail to happen. So the original language of the New Testament speaks of it as if it had already happened. So our eternal inheritance, though it is yet future, it is so certain, it is so, so absolute, it so cannot possibly fail to happen that God speaks of it in his word as if it had already happened. So in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We have yet to fully receive it, but in the mind and the will and the purpose of God, it's a done deal. It's already signed, sealed, and delivered. It's already ours in the mind of God. So sort of the first part of this source of our eternal inheritance is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. But Paul gives us a second part of that, and that is God's predestination. The second part to this source of our eternal election is God's predestination. As followers of Christ, we are what we are and we have what we have because of what God chose to make us before time began. It's not about luck. It's not about fate. It's not about um, uh, uh, human merit. None of that determines our destiny. None of that determines our eternal inheritance. He says in the verse that we have obtained an inheritance. Why? How is that possible? What is it sourced in? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, that word predestined, again, is kind of one of those difficult words to get our arms around. One of the simplest definitions that I've ever heard of predestined, and I think it's a helpful definition, is simply this that predestined speaks of God's perfect plan for the destiny of his chosen. Again, I'm not sure that's a perfect definition, but I think it's a fairly simple, helpful kind of definition, that predestination speaks of God's perfect plan for the destiny of his chosen, a destiny that includes our having obtained our eternal inheritance. And as he tells us here, it's all according to his purpose, which is the outworking of what? The counsel of his will. So because God the Father chose us to be in Christ before the foundation of the world, in the end, that becomes part of the source of our inheritance. It is ultimately a part of the perfect plan of God. So when I think of our eternal inheritance, if we're a redeemed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think, where does it come from? Well, it comes from being in Christ it also comes from God's predestination. But there's a third part to this here that Paul points out, and that is that it comes from God's power. It comes from God's power. Again, look at the verse. He says, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That little word, works, is the translation of a Greek word, energeo, we get our word energy from that word, or energize, or energetic. It comes from that word. 
So in God's wonderful grace, he chose us to be his children, citizens of his kingdom, joint heirs with his son. And what he has predestined in his grace, he accomplishes through his energeo, through his energy, through his power, through his works. That's what he does. Paul writes about this in another letter that he wrote over in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul writes, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. I like the way one author put it. He said it this way, that God energizes his plans with all the power necessary for their completion. So when God makes a plan, sometimes I make a plan, but I don't have the wherewithal to complete the plan, right? I've taken on some projects at home sometimes, and I thought I can do this. And I got halfway into it, and I realized I can't do this, right? Because I don't always have the energy, the wherewithal to do it, but that's never true with God. God energizes his plans with all the power necessary for their completion. Or maybe we could put it this way. God plans his work and then works his plan. And it's all centered in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all centered in Christ. So if you think about everything that we've talked to up up until this point in time, just like our election is according to the purpose of his will, verse 5, and just like our redemption is according to his purpose, verse 9, so our eternal inheritance is according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. Point being, you and I can't take credit for any of it. Not a bit of it. It's all of God. It's all according to the purpose of his will, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So when we think about our divine election, when we think about our redemption through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, when we think about our eternal inheritance, it is all of God. It is all of God. It's all of his grace. It's all of his goodness. It's all of God. Now, I was thinking a little bit about that. I was thinking, how do you illustrate that? I mean, we always recognize that, that truths of salvation are, are, are ginormous truths, right? And it's hard sometimes to think of a, of a human illustration that will properly sort of picture what Paul is talking about, what God is talking about. But, but here's what kind of came to my mind, and maybe this will help us to understand this. Um, a number of years ago, uh, Lynn and I, uh, we, um, I think I'll put it this way, um, we were the beneficiaries of, a, uh, of, of part of an inheritance from a lady that was in our church, all right? Um, let me kind of give a little background here. Her name was Glennis, and her husband's name was Irwin. And uh, Irwin and Glennis, they just had one daughter, and uh, that daughter was the centerpiece of their life. Um, she was the focus of everything they did. Growing up, it was all about Denise was their daughter's name. It was all about Denise and what she was doing and time that they could spend with her. It was the only child that they had. And so they loved Denise and spent all of their time with Denise. Denise was the center of their attention. Uh, Denise graduated from high school at the age of 18, and she was dating a guy kind of steadily, and they were talking about getting engaged and possibly getting married. But at the age of 19, one year after Denise graduated from high school, she was killed in a car accident by a drunk driver. I mean, immediately, Glennis and Irwin, their life was shattered, right? I mean, it was like life was over. I mean, they, it just, it was like they were hit by a ton of bricks. Um, In fact, it was so bad that uh, two years after Denise was killed, they could no longer stay in the house that they were living in 
because everything about that house was memories of Denise. So they moved out of that house, and they were living in Benton Township, and they moved out to Coloma. And in God's gracious goodness, they moved next door to a lady that was a believer. And Glennis and Irwin were not believers at the time, but they were about the same age as this next-door neighbor who was a believer. And this lady began to reach out to these new neighbors and to learn a little of their story, and she began to pray for them and, and realize some of the hurt they were going through and the heartache they were going through. And so she began to minister some hope into their lives and some encouragement into their lives and eventually invited Glennis to come to church with her and to go to some women's ministries at church and some other things at church. And in God's grace, Glennis came to faith in Jesus Christ. And God began to do a healing work in her life. And one day, Glennis came to the realization that if my daughter was still alive, she would be this age, and she probably would have gotten engaged, probably would have gotten married, so she'd probably have some kids, and those kids would be this age. And she began to think to herself, who in this church is about the same age that my daughter would be, married, and has kids that would roughly be the age if I would have had grandkids? And she found five families. And she came up to those five families, and one of them was Lynn and I, and said, I'm choosing you. She literally said that. I'm choosing you. I am adopting you as my own kids and your kids as my grandkids. And for the next 20 years, that's what she did. There wasn't a holiday. There wasn't a, an anniversary. There wasn't a birthday that she didn't remember. She lavished on us gifts and kindness and cards and gifts for our kids and, and birthday gifts and Christmas gifts, and not just us, but all five of those families. She said, I'm choosing you, I'm adopting you, you're part of my family, and I'm gonna grace your lives because I don't have a daughter. I don't, you know, that's gone. So for 20 years, she did that. Eventually, her husband, Irwin, passed away, and then a couple of years later, she passed away. And uh, we came to discover, didn't know anything about this at all, we came to discover after she passed away that literally just a few months before she passed away, she sat down with her financial advisor and her attorney and rewrote her estate plan. And when she died, shortly after she died, the five families came to discover that she took her estate and divided it up amongst those five families. Folks, we didn't deserve that. We actually weren't her family. She chose us to be her family. She basically, I mean, in all practical purposes, not legally, but she adopted us into her family. She graced us over those 20 years with so many blessings. Yes, we helped care for her, the five families, and, and served her in ways we could, but it was all a result of her choosing us and her adopting us and her blessing us. Now, folks, I don't know that that's a perfect illustration of what we're talking about. In fact, I know it isn't a perfect illustration of what we're talking about here, but it kind of gets the idea. Because when it comes to our divine inheritance, it's because God chose us. God adopted us. God brought us into his family. He graced us with so many spiritual blessings. He gives us this eternal inheritance. It's not something that I deserve. Sure, we serve the Lord. Yes, we do things that honor him, but why do we do that? It's because of his grace. It's because of the ways that he has blessed us. So when we think about the source of our eternal inheritance, we need to remember that we have obtained an inheritance because we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel 
of his will. It's all of him. It is all, all of him. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with just talking about the source of our eternal inheritance. He goes on in verse 12 and 13 to talk about the goal of our eternal inheritance. Look at verse 12 and 13. He says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So what is, what is it that Paul's telling us in these two verses? Well, I think he's telling us that in response to our having heard the word of truth, in response to our having received the gospel of our salvation, we believed in him. We believed in Christ. Therefore, our hope is both now and for eternity in Christ. Now, that word hope is, uh, you maybe have heard this before, um, uh, but that word hope is kind of an interesting word. In our normal language, the word hope sort of means wishful thinking, right? Um, um, uh, I'm going to tell you something that's going to turn some of you off. I'm an Ohio State fan. I grew up in Ohio. Um, I've lived in Michigan for 30 years, but it hasn't changed me. So I'm kind of hoping, you know, that somehow because TCU lost yesterday and because uh, USC lost on Friday night, I'm kind of hoping that somehow go by the University of Michigan, who my wife adores, um, I'm kind of hoping that maybe uh, Ohio State will get into the, the final, the four that go into the playoffs, right? Now, I'll be honest with you, I have no control over that. I'm not one of the people that votes on that. Nobody's going to call me up this afternoon and say, what do you think, right? They don't care what I think, right? So it's just sort of wishful thinking on my part, right? I'm just sort of hoping that Ohio State gets into the playoffs, right? But I don't have any say over it. It's just wishful thinking. But you know, that's not how the New Testament uses the word. The New Testament uses the word hope in terms of something that is a confident expectation, so when we read verse 12 and 13, we need to read that into the word hope, all right? So what Paul is saying is this. He's saying that in response to our having heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, we believed in him, and therefore we now have a confident expectation, right? Our eternal uh, inheritance is not just wishful thinking. It's not just hoping in luck or fate or that something goes our way. No, not at all. It is a confident expectation. And the goal of that confident expectation, he tells us here in verse 12 and 13, is so that we might be to the praise of his glory. That's why we heard the word of truth, why we received the gospel of our salvation, why we believed in him, why we have this confident expectation. It's all toward the goal that we might be to the praise of his glory. That's what it's all pointing to. That's what it's all about. That's the direction it's going. Now, when you think about that, and you think about verse 11, 12, 13, there's kind of as a sidebar, um, Paul is sort of helping us here. You know, the theme that we have chosen, or that was chosen for this study of Ephesians, in Christ and in community. And as Wes reminded us this morning, and as we've been reminded many, many times, our identity statement starts off by talking about our being a redeemed family. So in these 11 verses, we learn something about that. 
Uh, what we have in these verse 11, 12, and 13 is not only truth about our eternal inheritance, but it's also we learn here something of the how and the why of our being a redeemed family. So it ties into our identity statement. How did we come to be in Christ? How did we come to be in community? How did we come to be a redeemed family? Well, the answer is, according to verse 5, verse 9, and verse 11, it's all according to the purpose of his will. That's the how. That's how we got into this, how we became people in Christ, how we became part of a community, how we became a redeemed family. It's all according to the purpose of his will. And then it also answers something of the why question. Why did God place us in Christ? Why did he place us in community? Why are we a redeemed family? Again, look at verse 6, verse 12. It's all to the praise of his glory. It's all specifically to the praise of his glorious grace. So everything we have in Christ and everything we are in Christ, including our eternal inheritance, everything, everything comes from God and returns to God. When you think about it, it all begins in his will, and it all ends in his glory. I mean, that's, that's kind of a summary statement of redemptive history, is it not? It all begins in his will. It all ends in his glory. I mean, that's kind of what it's all about. So the goal of our eternal inheritance is the full expression of God's will, as well as the full expression of his glory. Now, folks, let's be honest. Um, the culture that we live in, and sometimes the culture that creeps into our lives, um, that kind of talk kind of comes into violent collision with our culture. Because we live in a culture where there is this man-centeredness and self-centeredness of the world in which we live, this enslavement to our own little egos that has this boundless confidence in the power of our own will and has this insatiable appetite for the praise of our own glory. So what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to be in community? What does it mean to be a redeemed family? When you get right down to it, it means that as God's possession in Christ, a whole new value system. It's not about my will anymore. It's not about my glory anymore. It's about his will and his glory. A new value system, new ideals, new goals. We are God's possession who are in Christ according to the purpose of his will and who are to live to the praise of his glorious grace. It's not my will, my glory. It's his will, his glory. That's what it means to be in Christ. That's what it looks like. Those are the kind of concepts we need to flesh out every day. To be in Christ and in community, be a redeemed family, it's his will, his glory. I set aside my will. I surrender my autonomy to his authority, right? I surrender my self-glory to his ultimate glory. Why? Because it's all him. It's not fate, not luck, not my merit. It's all, all, all of him. So here in this passage, Paul teaches us something of the source of our eternal inheritance. He teaches us something of the goal of our eternal inheritance. And then we come down to verse 13 and 14, and he teaches us something of the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. And this is where the Holy Spirit of God, the member of the Trinity, sort of steps into the picture. Look at verse 13 and 14 again. In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, here we go, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
So three things Paul tells us here in these two verses about the role of the Holy Spirit in regard to our eternal inheritance, all right? Let's just go through them quickly. Number one, the Holy Spirit marks us as belonging to God. He marks us as belonging to God. He tells us here in this text, Paul tells us, those who are in Christ are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, that word sealed that is used here, it's actually a very um, kind of picturesque kind of word. It's a word that means to, uh, uh, it refers to a specific mark of identification. And it was a specific mark of identification that was put on a letter or put on a contract or put on some very important official document. And typically the way they would do it, and you've seen this before, I'm sure, is they would drip some hot wax on that official letter or on that contract or on that important document. They would drip some hot wax on that document. And the one that was signing the document with the authority behind that document would have a signet. It might have been a ring. And they would take that ring off their finger and press that signet into that hot wax, put their mark on that letter, put their mark on that contract, that mark on that official document. And once they did that, the document was thereby officially identified and now under the authority of the person to whom the signet belonged. So what does that say to you and me? Because he says that's what the Holy Spirit does to us. That's part of the role of the Holy Spirit in terms of our salvation and our eternal inheritance. Well, the seal of God's Spirit in the life of the believer, I think it signifies at least four things. Number one, it signifies security. It signifies security. The Holy Spirit secures each believer, marking him or her with God's own unbreakable seal, his secure seal. I think it also speaks of authenticity. When God gives the believer the Holy Spirit, it is as if he stamps us with a seal that reads, this person belongs to me. He or she is an authentic member of my divine family. But it's not only, not only security and authenticity, it's also an issue of ownership. The Holy Spirit marks the believer as God's divine possession, who from that moment on entirely and eternally belongs to him. So the seal of the Holy Spirit speaks of security, authenticity, ownership. I think it also speaks of authority. When Christians are sealed with the Holy Spirit, they are now delegated to go out there with the seal of the Holy Spirit of God to proclaim, to teach, to minister, to defend God's word and the gospel, not in our authority, not with our signet, not with our stamp, but with the stamp of the Holy Spirit of God. So what does that look like? Well, again, I don't, I don't, know, how you, I don't know how you get up in the morning, right? It's really none of my business, right? Um, some of you, some of you, a very, very small few of you, may just bound out of bed in the morning, right? Um, Sess, I'm thinking you're one of those kind of guys, right? No, you're not. Okay, I won't pick on anybody else then, all right? Um, some of us just were those people that bound out of bed. We don't need any caffeine. We have this natural caffeine first thing in the morning. We just hit the ground running. We're good to go. Others of us in the room today are probably like those people that the alarm rings and it's like, ugh, you know, and we hit the snooze button, right? Seven minutes later, we hit the snooze button again. And somewhere between the second and the fourth snooze button, we drag our weary body out of bed, right? We don't hit the ground running. We hit the ground crawling. We're not like the person that doesn't need caffeine. We are in desperate need of caffeine, right? 
So I don't know whether you're one of those people that doesn't need any caffeine or you're one of those people that needs all kinds of caffeine. Probably most of us are somewhere in the middle. But here's the thought. Whether we're a quick waker-upper or a slow waker-upper or something in the middle, in the morning when we get up, when our feet first hit the ground in the morning, we should be thinking in terms of security, authenticity, ownership, authority, that God has secured me through the working of the Holy Spirit. He has authentically marked me as part of his divine family. He has placed his signet of ownership upon me. And I go out to my work today, my school today, my family today, my shopping today, whatever I'm going out to today, I go out in the authority of none other than the God of the universe. Now, I realize we still got to go to work, right? We still got to go to school. We still got to do all that stuff of life. It doesn't disappear. But I would hope I would look at it from the perspective of who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit is in my life. The Holy Spirit is that seal, that mark that I belong to God today. And I belong to him yesterday. And I'm going to belong to him tomorrow. In fact, I'm gonna be- I belong to him entirely and I'm going to belong to him et- I belong to him eternally. That gives us hope. That gives us encouragement. The second thing he tells us about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit is God's down payment. He's God's down payment. Look at verse 14. He says, who, the Holy Spirit, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the promised Holy Spirit not only signifies the seal of God's ownership of us and our authenticity as his own, but the Holy Spirit is also God's guarantee. Now, that word guarantee, and depending on the translation of the Bible you have in front of you, it may translate it pledge, all right? It may translate it either way, all right? But that guarantee, that pledge, that word originally referred to a down payment. It originally referred to earnest money given to secure a purchase, all right? As it evolved, the word came to refer to any kind of guarantee, any kind of pledge, any kind of earnest. Now, where, where do we see that in our lives? in our lives. I was trying to think about that and think, how do we illustrate that? And uh, the Lord reminded me of this on Wednesday. So on Wednesday night, uh, Lynn and I had the privilege of hanging out with the youth group uh, for an hour and a half. Um, uh, You've gotten the email from Alex and Amy. They've asked us, if you can, to sign up once a month. They'd like to have a person or a couple of persons or a couple from the church just come out and hang out with the kids for an hour and a half and, and, uh, uh, you know, share a little bit of their life story with the young people. And the evening, I will admit, the evening started off a little rough. Um, they played four square. And uh, so the, um, I never even made it past the second square. Um, they, were, they were ruthless. Um, they, were, they, were, they had no mercy. They showed no grace. And, and every time they took me out, they smiled. You know, it's just like, really? Really? But things went up from there. Played a few other games, did a few other things, lots of fun, lots of good times, got to know them a little bit, and then we transitioned here into the auditorium and did some worship stuff together, and then it was sort of Lynn and I's turn, and they had prepared like four or five questions they want to ask us. And one of the questions they wanted to ask us was, well, how did you and Lynn get together, right? And so we told them a little bit about how we got together. Lynn was from Michigan, I was from Ohio, all right, but we ended up at the same college together, and we ended up in a couple of classes together. We also ended up in a choir together, and it was a traveling choir. 
So every weekend, we would all get on a bus, a Greyhound kind of bus, that kind of thing, tour bus, and we would travel for the weekend. So you had 50 college students on a bus virtually every single weekend. So you get to know those people way too, too much more than you really like to know them, right? Just the nature of living on a bus, right? And uh, so we were a part of that together. So during our freshman year of college, we got to know each other because we were a part of that. So come our sophomore year of college, I, uh, on uh, November 1st, 1979, sophomore year of college, I asked Lynn out on a date. And uh, amazingly, she said yes. And uh, so we went to an event on campus and went out to Pizza Hut afterwards and, and shared a pizza together. A few weeks later, I um, asked her out on another date because the first one seemed to go okay. And uh, then eventually asked her out on a third date, maybe fourth date, maybe fifth date, something like that. But somewhere in about, uh, about three or four months into this relationship, um, I looked at her one time when we were doing something, either talking together, sitting together, whatever it might be, and I said, uh, would you ever be interested in being a pastor's wife? You know, because at that point in time, I knew that that was kind of way God was directing me, and I was thinking, if, if you ain't going that direction, I'm going that direction, so let's just be friends, right? And she looked back at me, and she said, you know, I've actually thought long and hard about being a pastor's wife. I think God would really want me to be a pastor's wife. Well, I've told you before I'm a bad athlete. Well, I'm a worse dancer. Um, but inside of me, I was, best of my abilities, I was doing my happy dance. I know it's not pretty. I didn't do it for very long, you know, but I was doing my happy dance. So we dated more seriously through our sophomore year, junior year, summer between our junior and senior year. You know, I picked up an engagement ring. She was living in Michigan, drove up to Michigan, sat down with her mom and dad and said, you know, is it okay, you know, if I marry your daughter? And I remember uh, John and Colleen with their names, and John and Colleen, they looked at me and basically said, you're not only a bad athlete and a slow dancer, but it is taking you forever to do this, right? <laughs> you know? Um, so it's just sort of the nature of my being, right? Um, and they said, great. So that evening, popped the question. She said yes. Her yes was her pledge to me. My pledge to her was an engagement ring, right? And that's kind of the idea here. It's that pledge, that down payment. As believers, we have the Holy Spirit as the divine pledge, the down payment of our inheritance. God's first installment, his guarantee, his engagement ring, that we will one day come to fully realize the fullness of all the promised spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, that we will acquire possession of it. That's who the Holy Spirit is. That's his role, part of his role in our salvation. He is not only the seal, he's the guarantee. But there's one other thing that Paul mentions here, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's goal in all of this is God's glory. Look at verse 13 again. It says, in him, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of, the, uh, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our, our inheritance, until we, acquire, until we acquire possession of it. Why? What's this all pointing to? What's the goal of this? To the praise of his glory. Folks, we have heard it from Paul over and over and over again in these opening 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. The great overriding goal of salvation in all its components is to the praise of his glory. It's all to the praise of his glory. Here in Ephesians 1, 11 to 14, we learn that we should celebrate our eternal inheritance. We should rejoice over the fact that we will receive the full blessings of our salvation. When God wills to do something, even though the accomplishment of that event may be future in terms of time, it is completed in the mind of God. 
There is no change in it. There's no going back on it. There's no plan B when it comes to God. He's had one plan all along. It's the plan of redemption. And by his grace and for his glory, you know, we have the privilege of being a part of that, right? It's true with our eternal inheritance. You know, when I think about our eternal inheritance, it's not about money, right? Usually, human inheritances are about money, right? They're about money, stuff, property, that kind of thing. Our eternal inheritance is not about money, not about stuff. It's not about property. You know, when I think of our eternal inheritance, the thing that touches me most, or two things that touch me most, number one is there'll be that eternal inheritance, which is the final freedom from the power of sin, from the presence of sin, and from Satan, who is the ultimate person behind sin. I look forward to that day. Um, life is messy, right? right? Church is messy, right? I wish church was picture perfect. I wish everything would be rosy. wish everything would go bottoms up. I, I, you know, I, I, you know I'm, it, it, life is messy. You know? It's just the nature of it. Um, I mean, you know, because of the presence and power of sin and the person behind sin, you know, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, relational, we live in. I'm a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Oh, there's a lot of brokenness in this old house, right? And it gets more and more broken as years go by, right? There's a lot of struggles in this old house. But this old house isn't me. This is not me. This house is temporary. This house is broken. This house is frail. But I'm eternal, and I'm getting a new house. Someday it's going to be in a new home called the new heaven and the new earth. So when I think about eternal inheritance, it's not and the new earth. So when I think about eternal inheritance, it's not money and stuff and property. It's about final uh, freedom and total removal of the presence and the power and the person of sin, not any part of that, and a new house in a, a new home. It's not pie in the sky by and by. This is reality, right? This is what we ache for. This is what we long for, to be out of the mess and into the perfection. That's what we want. That's what we look forward to. So as believers, we have the Holy Spirit as God's pledge, as God's first installment, as God's guarantee that all the promised spiritual blessings of salvation will one day be completely realized. The Holy Spirit is the believer's divine engagement ring, signifying that God will be faithful to all that he has promised. In the end, the role of God the Holy Spirit in our salvation as well as the role of God the Father and God the Son, is cause for celebration. Folks, not for the celebration of us, but the celebration of Him. The great, the great overriding purpose of our salvation, the goal of our salvation, is to bring and give praise and rejoicing to the wonder and magnificence of God, the one who has blessed us in Christ, blessed us with every spiritual blessing, the one who saved us, that we might praise him, the one who saved us and redeemed us and chose us and gave us that divine inheritance so that we might celebrate him and rejoice over him forever and ever and ever and ever. So remember, no matter how uncertain your future may appear in the here and the now, no matter how uncertain it may feel physically or vocationally or academically or financially, if you're in Christ, you are wealthy beyond measure. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord, for um, 
these truths that we've been able to reflect upon over the course of these last three weeks about our salvation. Lord, um, we thank you for all that you have done for us. Father, help us each day to strive to live under your authority, not our autonomy, to flesh out your will. Lord, each day might we live as, as people that are in Christ and in community, as a redeemed family. Lord, that we might live for your glory and for the praise of your glorious grace. Father, we thank you today for salvation. We thank you today for the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing us and guaranteeing us and reminding us again of the goal, which is the praise of your glory. Amen. Thank you again for joining us on the Harvest Lakeshore podcast. If you have found this content helpful, consider sharing the episode with friends or leave us a rating and review. For more info about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. You are loved.